1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. Give ear to God's word. Paul writes, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Well, if you were here last Sunday, I know some of you weren't here, we looked at uh, what sometimes is called the opening reading of Paul's epistle to Timothy, his first epistle. And we saw the theme in those verses, the first five verses, was kind of Paul's charge to Timothy was that he was to defend the faith. False teaching had crept into Ephesus, and he left Timothy behind. Timothy, this young protege pastor, and, and charged him to defend the faith, to tell these false teachers to stop doing what they were uh, doing. And so, you know, in some ways, as we saw this book, both First and Second Timothy are really about how we are to conduct ourselves in the ministry of the gospel and the church. And so all throughout this book, Paul rings the same note of defending the faith against false teaching. And so defending the faith in this way, it's, it's in some way, it's an essential part of the work of any true pastor or elder. It's not, it's a non-negotiable. Any pastor, any elder who willfully neglects this part of his calling, you know, it's kind of like, if I can use another scriptural analogy, it's kind of like a shepherd seeing his flock getting attacked by a wolf and he looks the other way. He's not really a pastor or a shepherd at all. If he does it, he won't have a flock very long either. It's a dereliction of duty of the first order to do something like that. Well, here in our text, what the Apostle Paul does is, he gives us kind of a partial description. Timothy knew who he was talking about. We don't. So we're at a little bit of a disadvantage. It's almost like, you ever listen to one side of a phone call? And you're getting little bits and pieces and you're kind of trying to put it together and figure out what it was that they're saying? That's kind of what part of this is. Paul's telling Timothy who these people are, what kind of things that they were teaching, what they had gotten into. But he gives a partial description of these kinds of false teachers that were threatening the peace and purity of the church there in Ephesus. And so, you know, it doesn't really matter that much that we don't get to know the whole picture about who they were because we're threatened by all kinds of different false teachings. Sometimes it's something like this. But sometimes, you know, if, if he were to paint the whole picture, what we might do, which would be wrong, is we'd say, well, we have to look out for this specific thing. And, that, and, and we'd leave other things un, unobserved and un, unchecked, and we don't want to do that. And so we have a lot to learn by this this passage, I think, this morning, I think his description of this false teaching and how to oppose it is still helpful for us in our day and have the lessons he teaches Timothy, I think, have an abiding significance for us in the church all these years later. So the first thing that Paul does in our text, if you see it there, is he gives us at least a partial description of the false teachers and what they were teaching. He's telling Timothy who it was that he was to confront and to stop what they were teaching. And 
And what does he teach us about these teachers? At least a couple things. The first thing is, he tells us they had swerved from the truth. You know, they didn't have cars in his day, but I picture a car, you know, going out of the lane and that kind of a thing, swerving from the truth. Uh, they may, and, and what that implies is they probably started out well. You know, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you might know someone, maybe even a pastor, who started off very well. Things seem like they were going just fine, and then something happens, and over time they kind of go off course. And that, I have known people that that has happened with, and maybe you do as well. They start off well, but at some point, at some point they take kind of a doctrinal detour of sorts. In verses 6 through 7, look there, Paul says, Certain persons or some people, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, what what did they swerve from? When Paul says swerving from these, he's referring back to verse 5. We saw that last Sunday. There Paul says that he tells Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In other words, Here's why he was telling Timothy to tell them to put a stop to it. Here's why he was to oppose false teaching. Because the goal of any true Christian teaching is what? Love. Love that issues or comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. What they were teaching in some way went against those things. What they were teaching was not something that that, that proceeded forth and issued forth in love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And so that's that's really supposed to be the goal of any true teaching of the Bible. One of the, the things that, that we are to look for and, and to be the goal of our teaching, whether it be in the pulpit or elsewhere, is that kind of Christian love. There's supposed to be a result or a fruit of godly Christian teaching, and that's what it should be. And false teaching always seems to lead away from those things. False teaching especially false gospels, always seem to lead away from godly edification. Sometimes it's, you know, you get caught up in things that are just interesting or things that that don't have anything to do with loving your neighbor and loving God. You know, Paul says in Galatians 5, 6 that, that the goal is faith working through love. And so faith, what we believe, affects how we live, or it should. And false teaching... Uh, you can't help but think, you know, if it doesn't lead to, to true faith, it also won't lead to godly edification and faith working through love. And, you know, there are many things in our day, there always are, that seek to distract us and get us off track in one way or another. And, of course, those sidetracks, those distractions, those false teachings, you know, they never, they never really seem to present us, you know, present themselves to us as what they really are. They don't come with a placard or a name tag saying distraction, false teacher. You know, sometimes I kid around and I say, well, some do come to your door with a name tag. Uh, but, but false teachers don't present themselves as such. They might wave a Bible around. They might quote, the devil quoted scripture, didn't he? In Matthew chapter 4 when he tempted the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't show themselves to us. They're not honest as, as if they were going to tell us they were distractions or detours from the way of truth. And in fact, they often present us, they present themselves to us rather, as if they were kind of teaching the deep things of God. This is, this is the way a lot of these things take their root. You know, there's this, you ever watch the, the Christmas story? I won't quote it, but you know, the, the little kid wants the BB gun, 
and he's on the radio show, you know, and he's listening for the clues, and 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 what does he get for his prize? A little orphan no, is a little orphan any decoder ring. You know, a lot of a lot of Christian ministries and pastors, many of them, they they present themselves as if they're giving you the decoder ring. They're helping you understand these secrets that the other Christians that don't know any better don't don't really get. But if you follow me, you'll really get it. That kind of a thing. That's that's the kind of thing that this I think reminds me of. You know, they they tell you they're going to teach you the deep things of God, the things that you know, the secret to the Christian faith and life. And in doing that, what they do is they're not appealing to faith. They're not appealing to, to faith working through love. They're appealing to your vanity. And they're appealing to your curiosity. And they're appealing to your flesh and not to your faith and the love of God and your neighbor. But, you know, one thing that always seems to be evident is the, the fruits of this kind of teaching is that it always seems to lead you away from the simplicity and truth of God's word. These kinds of things always seem to distract you from Christ and his sufficiency in all things. And the results of these things, in the end, is always anything but edification. What does Paul call it in verse 6? Vain discussion or vain words is literally what he's saying. Empty talk, just talk. That's really all it amounts to in the end. And what are these different teachers, these teachers of different doctrine that Paul calls them, what, what was it? that they saw themselves. How did they fancy themselves and present themselves to the church in Ephesus? In verse 7 he says that they were, quote, desiring to be teachers of the law. That, that sounds pretty good, right? I mean, God's law. Not the, so if you were just leave it there, they just wanted to teach God's law, that wouldn't be a problem. That would be fine in and of itself. But he, what does he add there in verse 7? They desired to be teachers of the law, but they were, quote, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They were really confident in the false things they were teaching. They really knew, they were sure they knew what they said that they knew. And what does Paul say? He said they don't know what they're talking about. No matter how much they pound their fist on the table, no matter how boldly and confidently they tell you they know the truth, they don't. I think that's a lesson for us today in the church as well. Paul doesn't mince words when it comes to false teaching. He calls it out uh, very boldly and plainly. And, you know, these, these teachers saw themselves as experts on the subject of God's holy law. And so they, you know, they no doubt presented themselves as, as very educated, as scholarly maybe. And, you know, that, that wasn't uncommon in Paul's day. And I think that's even more common in our own day. But they didn't know what they're talking about, and that is still the case in many cases today. It kind of reminds me of an old quote by President Reagan back in the day, a long time ago. He said, the trouble with our liberal friends is not that they are ignorant, it's just that they know so much that isn't so. They know so much that isn't so. False teachers are a lot like that. The problem isn't so much that they're ignorant, it's that they know so much and teach so much that isn't so. And they desire to be teachers in God's church in order to make others share in their ignorance and confusion. Well, the second thing that Paul does, he describes the false teachers to us in some regard. And then one of the things he does, he teaches us to have a right view of the law. These false teachers, they put themselves out there as being teachers of the law. So Paul wants to make sure that we don't get the wrong idea. He wants to make sure that you and I don't think to ourselves, aha, I know what the problem is. They wanted to teach God's law. You shouldn't want to do that. And Paul says, no, the, the problem is not with the law. The law is what? What does he call the law in verse, there in verse 8? The law is good. 
God's law is good. He doesn't want us to get the wrong idea. The law is not the problem. God's law is never really the problem. It's how we use it. Nothing could be further from the truth, thinking the law was the problem. In verse 8 he says, Now we know that the law is good, and then he adds, if one uses it lawfully. So the law of God is good, but it must be understood rightly in order to be applied or used rightly or lawfully to begin with. Now, I have to say, you'd probably be hard-pressed to find a subject about which more professing Christians are confused about than the law of God. Maybe the only thing I can think of that might be more than that is the gospel itself. Many are confused about the gospel. It's sad that that's the case, but I think the law of God is a confusing topic for many. I wish it were not the case, but I think that is so. And you know, some some will say to you, the Christian is no longer obligated to obey God's law. I have heard that more times than I can uh, care to remember. They'll say that we're not obligated to obey God's law because they, they twist God, Paul's words, found in Romans 6.14, where Paul says, you are not under law, but under grace. How many of, that's scripture, right? Nothing wrong with that phrase at all. But how many of you have heard someone say, The commandments aren't really something we have to worry about. Why? Because you're not under law, you're under grace. I've heard that a number of times, uh, even from pastors. Now, in in saying that statement and making that kind of an assertion, they're actually saying the very opposite of what Paul is saying in Romans 6.14. Here's the rest, you know, Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. Here's the rest of the verse. Romans 6.14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. The exact opposite of what some of these pastors will tell you is what Paul was intending. Paul's saying, you're not just going to go on living in sin. Why? Because you're not under the law, you're under grace. Grace does not mean you can sin your fill. Grace means you won't. Grace now reigns where sin used to reign. The grace of God and the gospel of Christ actually frees us from the dominion or enslavement to sin. That's what Paul is saying. The result is that if you are in Christ, you are no longer under the curse of the law because of your sin. And so sin will no longer be your master if you are a Christian. If you're a believer in Christ, you are no longer enslaved to sin. Instead, what sin used to reign over you. Now what reigns over you? Grace. The grace of God is now reigning in you so that you are sanctified in Christ more and more until you're at home in heaven. That's what Paul and the rest of Scripture teaches. You know, the the way that many pastors, uh, many Christians, and even many pastors I, I have heard sound when they speak about God's law, I have to say it bears very little resemblance to the way that the saints in the Old and New Testament speak of God's law, especially King David. If you read the Psalms, the Psalms are full of things that many people would never think to say about God's law. Psalm 1, verse 2, the first Psalm in the whole book. David says that the man who is blessed delights in the law of the Lord and meditates, thinks about it day and night. Psalm 19, verse 7, David there says, The law of the Lord is perfect, Reviving the soul. Psalm 119.97. Here's a mind blower. David says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. David loved God's law. 
David did not feel like God's law was a burden strapped to his back to make his life miserable. He loved God's law. His goal, he sinned, we know he sinned just like we sinned. His goal was to obey God's law in all things because he knew it was the way of blessing. The law of God should be our delight as believers in Jesus Christ. The law of God, we should love the law of God. We should be able to put those words of David in our mouths uh, from a sincere faith and say, I love God's law. I know I don't follow it perfectly, and that won't happen until I'm in heaven, but I want to. It's a good. It's good for me to follow God's direction. God's law, his commandments, what do they do? What's their purpose? They reveal God's holy will for us, for our lives. They teach us the way that you and I should live if we're going to show our gratitude to God for the salvation we have by his grace alone in Jesus Christ. God's commandments, his law, show us the path of blessing and reward. James 1, verses, uh, verse 25, James 1, 25, it says there, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. That's a promise from Scripture for believers in Christ. Knowing God's law isn't the point. We, we have to be familiar with it, but we need to try to seek to be a doer of it. And look what he calls it, the perfect law. And then the one that we would never probably think to call it, but we should. The law of liberty. The law of liberty. That's what God's law is to a believer in Jesus Christ. God's law reveals the character of God to us. If you want to see what God is like, you look at his law. It's a reflection of his God, holy character. God's law shows us how to love God in response to his great love for us in Jesus Christ. 1 John 5.3, it's one of those verses I wish everybody would memorize. 1 John 5.3 says this, For this is the love of God, what do you think it is? That we keep his commandments. And then he adds, and his commandments are not burdensome. His law is not a heavy load strapped to your back. That's not how a Christian should look at it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've been saved from your sin by the grace of God, the way that you show your love to God, one of the main ways is just by keeping his commandments. Not perfectly. We, we know we can't do that in this life, but we seek to follow God's will. If you love me, he says, keep my commandments. And so if you're treating God's commandments, his law, as if it were a burden strapped to your back, you're thinking about his law all wrong. That's not why God gave it to his people. Well, the third thing that Paul does here in our text is he shows us the right view of the law. He shows us why God gave, or at least part of why God gave it in the first place. He says, the law is good, and then he adds what? If one uses it lawfully. It's kind of a play on words, but he's saying, God gave it to you for a reason. Don't use it for something else. Don't take it out of the context in which he gave it. Look at verses 9 through 11. Paul says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which... With which I have been uh, entrusted. Now, Paul, Paul doesn't say everything there is to say here. That's not his point. 
He doesn't tell us everything there is to know about the uses and purposes of God's law. Reformed theologians for years, I won't go into this much right now, but they've, they've often talked about three uses of God's law, three uses, three purposes for which God gave his commandments uh, in, in this, no particular order. But the first one is often called the uh, pedagogical use. And that is the, the, the kind of use of God's law where it shows you your sin. It's like a mirror. It shows you your sin. It shows you where you stand before a holy God on your own. And it shows you, it should, your need for Jesus Christ. It shows you the need for a Savior. In other words, it shows you that you're a sinner. The second use is often called the civil or civic use. It's, it's to restrain sin in a place. The more people are aware of God's law, it's supposed to have, at least in some regard, a restraining uh, effect on a society. They know what's right and wrong, and I, I don't think it's any coincidence in our particular land that the law of God has gone into, you know, people have shut it up in a closet somewhere, and now we see all kinds of immorality being supported and celebrated in our country. I think the ignorance of God's law has a lot to do with that. And the third use, and, and John Calvin calls this the main use for the Christian, the primary use for the Christian, they call it the normative use. In other words, it shows a believer who's been saved by God's grace how we are to live to show our gratitude to God. That is the primary use for a believer, that third one. That's not what Paul's getting at here in our text, though. He's refuting the false teachers and how they were misusing it. And so Paul says the first thing there, he says, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. And so what's he saying? He's kind of getting at that first use, the pedagogical use, the one where it shows you our sin. You know, if it weren't for sin, the law would not have been necessary. That's kind of, that's his starting point. If it wasn't for sin, you'd have no need of God's law. Well, there's, there's sin, so we do need it. God didn't give the law because everyone there was just or righteous. He gave it because everybody was sinful and rebellious. You know, if no one ever committed murder, you wouldn't need a law outlawing murder. But there are murderers, and so God's law forbids it. This is, again, this is the pedagogical use of God's law, and then it reveals our sin to us. It shows us our need for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 3, verses 19 to 20. Romans 3, 19 to 20, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And here it is. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. No one, Paul says, no one is saved by the works of the law. Why? Because that's not the law's job. The law's job, first and foremost, the first thing that you and I as as sinners need the law to do is act like that mirror and show us our sin. Show us you're not right on your own to stand before a holy God. You are unfit on your own, outside of Christ, to stand before a holy God, because you are not holy. You are a sinner on your own. It shows us our sin. It shuts our mouths from boasting and thinking that we're self-righteous. It, it keeps us from thinking that we have any righteousness at all of our own to stand in front of a holy God on the day of judgment. No one will be justified in God's sight by the law, because the law for a sinner can only do one thing. It can only condemn 
us for having broken it. That's its job. It's like a, a prosecuting attorney. That's his job. That's the law's job outside of Christ for us. Now, some approach God's law through legalism. They approach it through legalism. They seek in some way to justify themselves by it. But that's not possible, as Paul says from Romans 3. All that can do is lead to pride that goes before a fall. It leads to hypocrisy. And in the end, legalism leads to condemnation. Trying to justify yourself by your works before a holy God only leads to condemnation. That was the rich young ruler's attitude towards the law. Remember Mark chapter 10 this rich young ruler runs up to Jesus, you know, good te- right in front of everybody. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's an evangelist dream. If somebody did that to me in the middle of a sermon, I'd be looking for the hidden camera. You know, okay, this got to be a prank. Somebody's pranking the pastor. What do I have to do? You name it, I'll do it. And what did Jesus do? He, I said this before. He he did what no evangelist should ever do. In so many words, he says. You know the commandments, and he starts listing them. I don't have it memorized, but he, he lists some of the Ten Commandments. And what did the rich young ruler say to Jesus, to the Lord himself? All these I have kept since my youth. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. What else you got for me? And it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, we would have said, liar. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus said, okay, one thing you lack. You just got one thing you got to do. And if he had a paper and pen, he was ready to write it down. And he said, you know, take everything you have, sell it, give it to the poor, and come follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. And what happened? He went away sorrowful for he had many possessions. He chose his stuff over Christ. Now, are you? is the gospel, if I'm preaching the gospel, am I supposed to say to you, sell everything you have, and follow Christ. Is that is that how you become saved? No. What was Jesus? Why did Jesus do that with that rich young ruler? Because he showed him you don't love God, you don't love your neighbor, you love your stuff. If if God asks you to choose between your stuff and Him, you you choose Him and you get rid of your stuff. That's not. There's no commandment saying Christians should all live in poverty in a monastery somewhere. Uh, but Christ has to come before everything, even before your earthly possessions. We just sang uh, a hymn, Let Goods and Kindred Go, This Mortal Life Also, uh, Martin Luther's hymn there. Um, that's what a, a legalist does. A legalist says, I'm going to justify myself by what I do. And the rich young ruler went, walked away from Christ rather than following him. And we don't know, we have no reason to believe he ever changed that course, sad enough to say. Others approach God's law through different forms of what you might call antinomianism. Now that that long, fancy-sounding word, uh, anti means against, right? You're anti-something, you're against it. And nomos is, is the word for law. So antinomia means against God's law. Now, it's very difficult to uh, give a better definition than that, but there's more subtle forms of antinomianism than, than what that may sound like. But in some way, people are anti-God's law. And in fact, it's often a perversion of the grace of God uh, that results from a view like this, that, that in such a way that makes it seem as if God's grace allows for uh, all kinds of loose living and licentiousness and sin. In the book of Jude, you know, just before the end of your Bible there, the book of Jude, one chapter long, verses 3 to 4, Jude writes this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about the, our common salvation, 
I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Here it is. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality or licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Catch that? They, they twist the grace of God. They pervert the grace of God into licentiousness. They make the gospel a get-out-of-jail-free card, a license to sin. You know, James Bond has a license to kill. He's a double O. They're saying, you have a license to sin because you got a, you got a Jesus card in your back pocket. You've walked an aisle when you were a kid. You got baptized. You prayed a prayer. You signed a card. Sin, sin your fill. People will tell you that. It's all fine. It's not all fine. The grace of God doesn't doesn't work that way. The grace of God doesn't make any Christian want to sin more. It's not how it works. The gospel, the grace of God and the gospel of Christ is not a pretext for sin, as some might twist it to their own destruction. The fact that in our text, Paul goes on to list so many different kinds of sins and wickedness in verses 9 through 11, I think, suggests that maybe these false teachers that Paul was telling Timothy about were teaching the law of God in such a way as to promote these things, as to promote licentiousness and sin. Perhaps Paul might have even been hinting that they themselves, the false teachers, were even guilty of some of these things to show the fruits of their teaching. That list he gives there, if you think about it, when I was reading it, maybe you were thinking along the same lines. He goes through the Ten Commandments in order. He doesn't quote them. But he uses the same exact order that you find in Exodus 20. He says there, he speaks of the lawless and disobedient, general categories, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. I think that's the first four commandments in some way summarized. But then he says, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. That's the fifth commandment. They're they're not honoring father and mother. They're doing violence to them. And then he says, for murderers. That's the sixth commandment. The sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, breaking the seventh commandment. Enslavers, that word enslavers actually means man-stealers. You know, your translation might say kidnappers, that kind of a thing. It's breaking the eighth commandment in a pretty major way. They're stealing people, they're stealing lives. Liars and perjurers, what's the ninth commandment? Thou shalt not commit false, bear false witness. And then he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. He goes through basically the whole list of the Ten Commandments and says, God's law is against these things. The fruit of these false teachers' teaching was probably in some way to allow for or excuse or even promote those things somehow. And so Paul calls them out. You know, in, in a sense, what he's saying here, and I think the lesson for us is it says elsewhere in Scripture, you You'll know a teacher and a teaching by its fruits. It's by your fruits you will know a doctrine or a teacher. And what they end up being is they're contrary, what he says, contrary to sound doctrine. Right doctrine should should issue forth in right living. It should tend in that direction and not the opposite. And this false teaching was contrary to sound doctrine and contrary even to the gospel itself. That's why it was such a serious thing why Paul told Timothy to take a stand against it. I think in in these verses, and we're going to see in the rest of the book as well, 
why it's so important to take a stand against false teaching and a perversion of the gospel, even a perversion of God's law. I think you can see why why this false teaching is such a danger in the church. You know, when Paul told the Ephesian elders, we looked at it at that last Sunday in Exodus chapter 20, he said, I know after I depart, he's talking about after he dies, I believe. He says, savage wolves. That's, that's what Paul pictured when he thought of false teachers. Ravenous or savage wolves will come in not sparing the flock. That's, that's the violent nature. It doesn't look like it on the surface. You know, people like Joel Osteen, they have a big, flashy smile and all these things. It's a wolf smile. It's a wolf smile. It's not a smile that you should be happy about. He's not teaching God's word faithfully. He's, he's leading people astray. He's telling them that Jesus died to fill your wallet. He's a wolf filling his own wallet. That's what he's doing. People like that, that's the kind of thing we have to watch out for. False teaching is not a small thing. It's not something that we can shrug off and ignore. You know, we, we like to keep the peace, right? We don't like, I don't like conflict. Maybe you don't like conflict sometimes. We just don't deal with things because we don't want to have conflict. Sometimes for the real peace and purity of the church, you have to have these things, have conflict. So it's not only the teaching itself that's bad, but the fruit is often rotten as well. It's contrary to the truth and even contrary to the gospel of the glory of our blessed God. Now, the grace of God doesn't teach us that way, does it? In the book of Titus, Paul writes to Titus in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, Paul says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, here it is, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's what Jesus died for, to save us from our sin and even to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for what? Good works for following him by his grace. The grace of God does not lead to licentiousness. Instead, it trains us up in repentance and godliness. For our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself on the cross. He died on the cross to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession and to make us zealous for good works. May the grace of God in the gospel more and more move you and I to be zealous for good works for the glory of God, especially at this time in a time of unrest in our country, that we might love our neighbors to the glory of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray.